is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Governor Newsom proposing a new constitutional amendment focusing on gun control. We'll go in depth into whether he's serious or just playing politics. There's a certain type of car that is more likely to be uh, totaled. We'll tell you what and we'll tell you why. And also, we might be on the verge of winning the fight against Alzheimer's disease. But we start with Governor Newsom and his proposed 28th Amendment. Stephen Stambaugh is a professor of political science at Cal State Fullerton. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So uh, I'm guessing that the governor has as much chance getting this constitutional amendment passed as I do winning an Olympic gold medal. So why is he doing it? Uh, he's doing it for politics. He's It's not a serious proposal for a constitutional amendment, but I believe it is a serious proposal on his part to try to set the agenda for the political uh, upcoming political season to try to set the agenda of what gun control policy could be or should be throughout the country. He seems to have appointed himself a role in the Democratic Party going into this next election of being the uh, the uh, Democrat attack dog, more or less, uh, willing to take on DeSantis directly uh, from a, a safe position of not actually being a candidate for higher office. To that end, he's also said, I'm, I will never be interested in being president. And, and I think a lot of people just assume that's not true. Maybe he's not thinking about being president right now because Joe Biden is running. But at some point he is down the road. Well, things like this help him with the Democratic Party? Obviously, progressives are going to like this, but will the the mainstream middle of the Democratic Party embrace this and see him as a possibility down the road? It would help him with primary voters, even in some of the more moderate states, but it wouldn't necessarily help him with the swing voters within those moderate states. So there's a, a nomination strategy and then a general election strategy. And this would it would be interesting on how this would play out in terms of a general election strategy. So, yes, he is not running in 2024 unless Joe Biden decides not to or you know changes his mind. Um, but Gavin Newsom is a little bit younger than Joe Biden. So I think he, he views a future um, uh, with a number of other Democrats as well who are viewing that for down the road for 2028. Um, the Within the Democratic primary electorate, these measures, maybe not a constitutional amendment, but these measures are ones that would fit in with a, a vast majority of them. And if it's moving, if he could move it past, which I think Gavin Newsom, I think Governor Newsom would have a difficult time being the messenger for this. But if the party could move it past the initial phrase of gun control or kind of uh, get people to think about it in terms of the, the narratives that have been built up off of these, a couple of those particular policy proposals may be tweaked a little bit, the age limit and things like that would be ones that uh, public opinion polls say get a majority of support around the country. I was going to ask, uh, on this proposed amendment, which I think we all are in agreement is not going to come to pass, uh, does it contain elements that actually would make one bit of a difference? Because California, as it is, and as you know, has some of the toughest gun control laws in the country, and it certainly hasn't stopped mass killings here. I think it's more about reducing than about stopping. And I think it's when we look at you get into the the details of a policy debate as opposed to a culture war debate, then it is a totally different type of uh, gun policy that would come up. So once if the narrative can ever move past, uh, let's ban them or let's 
Um, you know, Second Amendment means you can't touch them whatsoever. Once you kind of get past that, then you can go into some areas where there's a difference between gun rights and gun responsibilities. And gun responsibilities would be things along the line of safe use or uh, background checks or all those types of things that would fit into it. The age limit one, I think, isn't one necessarily that would go. But a few of the other things about mandatory background checks, those are things that could have some some sort of an impact. Um, but again, it's going to be measured impact. It's going to be baby steps. It is not a cure-all for anything. Uh, very quickly, uh, before we run out of time, uh, does this generally help the Democratic Party in the upcoming elections? It can. I, I don't think it'll have much of an impact. Um, it may rally the base a little bit. I think that's one of the things that President Biden is going to need is a little bit more enthusiasm out of his base. So having some surrogates out there who can do that, but also surrogates out there who can go toe-to-toe, like um, like you mentioned, go toe-to-toe with Governor DeSantis out of Florida. Somebody in the party needs to play the role of changing the narrative, of being the um, assertive individual out there to basically do some body blows. If you, you look at it from a boxing analogy, some body blows for uh for the party you, you look at it in terms of the republican side and those who've announced for president that seems to be the role that chris christie has anointed himself to be he is the person who's not necessarily seeking the nomination but the person who's wanting to do the body blows against the front runner uh former president trump and maybe somebody else succeeds i think gavin newsom's role this year is a little bit more that set the narrative take on uh ways where the president can still look presidential mm-hmm and uh, operate under that. But you yeah. need, every party needs somebody who can do that. All right. Uh, Stephen Stambaugh, professor of political science at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, Charles, I was just thinking a line from Succession yes. uh, is that uh, Gavin Newsom might be taking on the role of the pain sponge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very inside. <laughs> yeah. So one day we'll spend an entire hour talking we could, about that. Yeah. We could, yes. Still ahead, are we about to win the battle against Alzheimer's disease? We're going to talk to a doctor about some new developments. Right now, though, if you own or thinking about owning a Tesla and you get into an accident, there's a better chance than usual that your car by the insurance company will be considered totaled. And it's not because Teslas are fragile. Brian Moody is executive editor for Auto Trader. Brian, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what is the problem? Why would uh, an accident that with another vehicle uh, perhaps cost the insurance company a pretty penny lead to the insurance company saying, "Ah, this car is totaled? Why would the Tesla? Well, in many cases, and this could be true with other electric vehicles as well, there are so many sensors and cameras and uh, relays and that kind of stuff that the cost of repairing it, and remember, the way where we are today, the cost of getting it and getting it to you and waiting that time might be more than the car is worth, or it could just be, uh, you know, easier. But with Teslas, there's one thing um, and some models that's different than others, and that is that the battery pack is part of the structure of the car. That's something different. It's good for the manufacturing process. Maybe not great if it's in a serious accident. Does that also lead to uh, insurance companies uh, kind of jacking up the rates for Teslas in any car that has that kind of infrastructure? It likely would, um, and they would look at that. You know, one thing that insurance companies are great at is doing math. They do a lot of math to figure out what risk you are, what risk I am. So it's possible. Um, Another thing to consider is that unlike other um, automakers, Tesla is kind of a one-off. They have several vehicles. 
But if you look at an automaker like, say, I'm just picking this at random, Honda, Ford, or Chevrolet, they have many parts that can be amortized across many different model lines all throughout the country and, and over many years. That's not the case always with Tesla. You know, to go back to um, Rob's point about rising rates, insurance rates for Tesla owners, right. I, I'm also wondering, wouldn't it not also uh, ripple have a ripple effect down to almost anybody with a uh, car insurance policy? Because, uh, you know, year after year, most insurance companies keep coming up with either flimsy excuses or no excuses for raising everybody's rates. And of course, some of that is because they're factoring in their losses across right. a, a wide spectrum and, and making everybody pay for it. So what I'm getting at here is, are even non-Tesla owners in effect subsidizing people who want to own Teslas because their insurance rates may also go up? Well, the short answer is yes, but we don't know the internal workings of the insurance company, but that's how insurance works. So uh, good drivers are subsidizing insurance for bad drivers. Uh, that happens all the time. That's kind of how insurance works. But is that possible? Certainly that's possible. Would this also have a ripple effect to any other uh, EV it, where the insurance companies could look at the math and, and look at their statistics and say, okay, yes, Tesla's because, as you mentioned, the battery pack is part of the structure of the car. Couldn't they then just decide, you know what, there are a lot of EVs on the roads right now. Not only can we raise the rates, uh, would it affect the way they decide when an, any kind of EV is totaled, whether the battery pack is in the structure or sitting somewhere else? Yes, that, that's absolutely true. And there's one thing I've noticed with Tesla. Boy, they sure do get a lot of the credit and they sure do get a lot of the blame when some things like these happen. But in any electric car, if the car was damaged really severely and the battery pack had to be replaced, I can almost guarantee you that car is going to be totaled to begin with. And the truth of the matter is, isn't it, that it isn't just electric vehicles. I mean, all cars, new cars nowadays. True have so many electronic components, computer chips and sensors and cameras, that in just about any car, what would have been maybe a couple hundred dollar repair five, ten years ago, could easily be a thousand dollar repair now. Yes, and that's totally fair. But one thing to keep in mind that I think is the good news in all of this, today's cars have intentionally built in crumple zones. So the car is intended to deform in certain ways. Now, that may be more expensive in the end, but it saves lives. You want the car to deform, not the person. So when people look at old cars and say, oh, look at these old cars, they, they hardly ever get damaged. Well, that's not great. You want the car to absorb the energy, not the occupants inside the energy. So all of what you just said, yes, that's true of many new modern cars. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, that is Brian Moody, executive editor for Auto Trader. See, I want to have it both ways. I want yeah. my car in an accident to deflate, yeah. <laughs> but I don't want my insurance rates to inflate. I, I had a crumple uh, zone car uh, about 15 years ago that saved my life. Oh. And when you look at the damage, I was slammed from behind at high speed by a big truck, and the car crumpled right up to the back of the – right behind me. Wow. I was safe. I had no serious physical injury from it. But And they explained because the car crumpled like that, the back of the car was gone because the car crumpled that way. That's what saved my life. You know, I stopped uh, driving trucks right after that. Yes, you did. <laughs> I, and I thought that was odd. Coming up, science might be getting closer to developing a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Now, I know you've heard that many, many times yes, before. A lot. 
But this time, it, it looks like it may be the real thing, and we're going to talk to a very prominent researcher physician who's mm. going to tell us why. All right. Uh, right now, though, the Supreme Court has sided with black voters throwing out Alabama's latest congressional district map. With us to talk about it is Mark Gaber, Senior Director of Redistricting at Campaign Legal Center. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So right off the bat, before we get into the why uh, uh, two conservative justices decided to side with the liberals in this case, uh, explain to us very quickly so that everybody can understand what the Supreme Court did and why they did it and why they thought that the uh, district map that was drawn there in Alabama was wrong. Definitely. So for, for decades since the Voting Rights Act was passed by Congress in 1965, uh, one of the things it does is it prohibits racial discrimination in the way that district lines are drawn. So whether that's Congress, state legislature, city council, uh, up and down, you know, the forms of government. And it prevents districts from being drawn such that they crack apart minority communities uh, into multiple districts and uh, from sort of packing them into fewer districts than they might otherwise have. And so this was a a case that came out of Alabama about the congressional map. Alabama's had one uh, black majority congressional district for decades but as a much larger population of black residents than that, but you might think they should have in the, in the plan. And so the court, the lower court had held that the state needed to draw two districts to afford black voters an opportunity to participate equally. And the Supreme Court stayed that decision. So I think there was a lot of expectation that perhaps they might reverse it uh, once it went up on their decision. So I, I will bet, and I'm not a betting person, as I think Rob knows, I'm not like I'm not a real betting person. I'll bet on that. Yeah, yeah, but but I will bet that when this news broke this morning, wait, wait, why hold on, hearing, all of a sudden, wait, we're, we're being attacked by music. Yes, a whole bunch of beds decided to fire off at the same time. I've never had that happen before. Well, that that was very odd, and I didn't even touch it. Yes. I think we have a ghost in here. Yes. So for people listening, right. uh, you're not imagining it. It was yeah. actually interesting yeah. music and weird, <laughs> very odd. Uh, and it, what it means, by the way, is it means you won a prize. <laughs> so it means you won a prize. No. So uh, what I was uh, saying, actually, I wasn't asking yet, but I was sort of saying, was that uh, I'll be willing to bet that when the news broke this morning, this is cue the music. This is when the music came in. <laughs> yeah. uh, when uh, when the news broke this morning, both conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats alike had the same reaction. They went, huh? <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of a redistricting trial, actually, out on the West Coast in Washington State. And I woke up and, you know, normally I'd be on the East Coast and get the news when it happened. And I, I looked at it and I was like, wait, am I, am I awake? Did, so, am see? I reading what I think? I see? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? I, you know, I, I, th- I think that th- this law has gone up to the Supreme Court over and over and over again for, for decades. And it has routinely upheld the act, the Voting Rights Act, at least this part of it. There was another part of it that the court struck down in 2013. But, but this particular provision has been, has been upheld for years. And I, and I think folks might have lost sight of that, that this, is, uh, this has always been the law for, for decades. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what, what happened in the hearts and minds of, of the justices. <laughs> but I, I do know that Justice Kavanaugh has... Uh, heard Voting Rights Act cases before in his time on the D.C. Circuit and and pretty egregious ones. And so I think that that he is certainly aware, uh, you know, that this isn't just a Democrat versus Republican thing, particularly in local 
uh, elections, school boards and things like that, where you see uh, you can see some pretty nonpartisan but race based discrimination. Uh, that this is a law that applies up and down the ballot all across the country. And, and I think that, you know, I just have to believe that uh, they, they they understood that its importance is, is very paramount still. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time, uh, the Supreme Court has is, is lost a lot of uh, prestige, I think, in the minds of many people as they saw what they uh, uh, perceived as the court taking a really hard turn to the hard right uh, with five, uh, con- you know, uh, with with a super majority of uh, conservative jurists on the panel. Uh, do you think this might help uh, bring back some of that prestige, the, the feeling that some people might have that the Supreme Court is there to make a decision based on the merits and, and they haven't just become this uh, super hard conservative organ? I, I don't know how you look at what happened today and not and not think that, that, that there's some element of that here. Right. Well, until, of course, the whatever, next, whatever the next yeah. decision yeah. might be. Yeah. yeah, until next Thursday. Right. right. <laughs> Thank for you. Today, so, for today, for today, it's okay. Until next Thursday, uh, that was uh, Mark Gaber, uh, Senior Director of Redistricting at Campaign Legal Center. You know, uh, later we are going to be talking about beating uh, Alzheimer's, but I want to go back to what we were talking about before with cars. So, uh, and you were talking about an accident, yeah. an unfortunate accident uh, that you had. But have you had the experience where... You've had a what should have been a minor accident, but you get the insurance bill and it's like, what? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have. Uh, it wasn't an accident, though. It was a hailstorm. A hailstorm. It did some damage to the top of the car. And yeah. yet the, 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 they found some loopholes to not cover that. At all. Yeah, at all. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A new study that looks into Alzheimer's research and drugs sounds optimistic when it comes to the future of treating this disease. With us now is one of the country's premier Alzheimer's researchers, Dr. Jeffrey Cummings from the University of Nevada, uh, Las Vegas. He put together this study. Doctor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure to be here, Charles. Thank you for having me. So we have heard, and I mentioned this before we we went into the break, we've heard over and over again uh, throughout the years that we're on the verge of of a breakthrough, we're going to soon have new meds, we're going to soon have new diagnostic techniques, you name it, we've heard it. And unfortunately, it tends to fall somewhat flat. Are we now actually, truly entering a new age, and how soon are we going to be in it, or are we in it? We are in it, Charles. It's so exciting. We have broken through the wall So we went from 2003 to 2017 on promises, just as you have said. And then in 2021, we had the first approval. In 2023, we had the second approval. More on the way. The biomarkers are guiding us. Just couldn't be more exciting. So what does this mean exactly? Uh, Is there a medication that we'll be able to take to to stave off getting the disease? Or is there also a treatment on the horizon for someone who is already suffering from the effects of Alzheimer's? So the two drugs that have been approved are approved for people who have mild Alzheimer's disease. So they're forgetful. uh, They might be getting lost. They're having trouble with activity, with uh, some of the activities of daily living but not disabled enough to have major difficulties with activities of daily living. So that early, early part of the disease, or that's where the patients were in terms of severity for the trials, for the drugs that have been approved. 
So now they're in a very exciting way. There are trials going on with people who do not yet have symptoms, but we know they already have Alzheimer's disease in the brain from our scans or from spinal fluid uh, tests. So we're pushing it back, Charles, further and further into normal aging so that people will never get Alzheimer's disease. Well, uh, so are we soon at a time, same variation of the same question I, I started uh, with, are we or are we now at a time when uh, getting Alzheimer's, and nobody wants to get any disease, of course, but will be t- treated almost with a, I hate to say a shrug because I don't want to minimize it, but you, I think you know what I mean, that people will go, oh, okay, I've got Alzheimer's, but I'll take this or my doctor will give me that and it'll be fine. Uh, or is that too far out there. I think that's too far out, Charles. I'd love to be, I'd love to say that that's where we are. I would say we've taken the first step uh, and we can't walk until we can step. We can't run until we can walk. Uh, But we've taken that first step to show that we can change the disease. We can remove the toxic protein from the brain. Uh, And these drugs are difficult to manage. uh, So we want easier drugs. We want drugs with fewer side effects. We want drugs with greater efficacy. Those are all things to come, but we have broken through the wall. That It's so exciting. Okay, so we bro- we've broken through the wall, in your words here, on, on Alzheimer's. Could this lead to other discoveries in the near term of that dream of a smart pill that a healthy person who does not have Alzheimer's can take and become smarter, have better memory, and so on, and maybe get into another line of work other than radio? We're certainly working a lot on brain health right now, and we see that there are uh, neurochemical correlates of brain health. Uh, so that's, uh, that's um, I, I think, pretty far in the, in the future, uh, but uh, we're on the runway, uh, and we're so encouraged by the results that we have just in the last two years. It's just incredible. Um, so I, so I, I think we're, we're well on our way to that, but we're not there yet. Let's talk, as we inevitably have to, in this country anyway, about money. Uh, are these drugs, the ones that are currently available, and maybe the ones that will be in the next five to ten years, are they going to be drugs that people can afford? This all depends, Charles, on whether Medicare decides to cover them. Uh, and we've had a lot of negotiations with um, Medicare, we and, of course, many others, uh, and uh, it looks like they will be reimbursed, uh, so people will have access to them. What we don't know yet is what restrictions Medicare will put on their use. Will it be experts only? Uh, will there be a registry? And if so, the, uh, how onerous? will the registry be for the doctors who want to give this drug? So there's a lot of questions. We believe that that Medicare will provide reimbursement, and that will mean that patients can get it realistically. Uh, But the details of that are going to roll out probably in the next two months. I mean, we we are just at a point where we're just running through all of this. All right. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Cummings sounds very excited, and it is exciting news from UNLV, and we put together this study. CNN is now looking for a new CEO after Chris Licht stepped down, or some say fired. He was criticized for the network's poor ratings. So what happens now? Rick Kaplan is a former president of CNN, a longtime TV news executive, and once was my boss. Rick, haven't talked to you for a long time. How are you? It, it's been a while. 
yes. in a while. So let me. I ask, also was president of MSNBC, that, that, yes, so you it's kind of unique. So let me ask you, uh, the first question is, if you take digital, the digital component of CNN and put it aside, is there a place in the future now for a CNN on cable television? And should the audience even care about that? Well, I think there is a place. There's so much news in the world right now, and there's always people willing to digest it. But what CNN has to do is get comfortable with itself. You know, this is a tortured network and has been for years when you and I were there as, as well. You know, it's got its own chemistry and its own heritage, and and uh, it's tough to take control and, and run it. And And the only time a news network like that's going to get huge ratings is when you're in the middle of an impeachment trial or, or a natural disaster or war or, <laughs> you know, something really dramatic because people don't need to sit there and listen. Are the days, uh, the olden days of, of wanting a cable news network to be down the middle, uh, facts only, uh, no opinion journalists uh, on the air. Uh, are those days gone, especially in today's landscape? Well, I hope not, because if you're if you're if you do it Fox's way, then how do you know anything that you're hearing? How do you know if any of it's true? It seems to me you need a place you can go that you can trust, and that's what CNN's trying to do. But you know they stumble over themselves. Chris Licht is a brilliant. All right. All right, we're going to have our, see if our producer yeah. can reestablish can uh, a connection with, with Rick Kaplan. Uh, and we are talking, uh, or were, with Rick Kaplan, who was one of the former presidents. There have been many since its inception uh, of CNN. And I pointed out, and he pointed out, uh, he was once my boss uh, when I worked there. And we're talking about, uh, we have Rick back. Rick, are you back with us? Yeah. Okay. Uh, very good. We we lost you there uh, for a minute. I, I want to go go back to something you you touched on, Rick. Uh, you were talking about the how long there's been a problem at CNN with how do you get people to watch when we're not in the middle of a war or perhaps in the middle of a of a, a once in a century pandemic, and that you're quite right about how long that problem has existed. I mean, I went through when I was there. Uh, a few presidents of CNN, yourself included, that was always a discussion. And it doesn't seem as if anyone, yourself included, with all due respect, came up with a winning magical formula. Is there one? No, I mean, there's not, actually. If you're going to be a network that's going to attract a broad spectrum of viewers, then you have to be prepared for the highs and the lows. And when there's not a lot of news or it's become so repetitious that you just don't listen to it anymore. Your, your numbers are going to go down. This is, a, this is actually a pretty good news period, but there's not a lot of stories. You know, you, get, you kind of get immune to it, and there's not a lot of stories that perk your interest or pique your interest. And because of that, the numbers will tend to sink. Um, but then when, if your reaction to it is that you're looking for the event that draws them in, so Chris Lick thought he had the answer, and, and it is a, a, a brief answer. So he has a town meeting with Donald Trump, but then he sells the shop out. You know, he gives the audience away to Trump. 
which destroyed the validity of the of the event because all of a sudden Trump is surrounded by compatriots. Uh, it would have been much more dramatic if your audience was across a cross section of people, some of whom loved him, some of whom hated him. You'd have had you'd have, I think you'd have had a better meeting, but he might not have done it then. And you have to be willing to walk away. Uh, I think it was Jake Tapper who, in in the, the aftermath of that town hall, and CNN got a lot of uh, critiques uh, for it, uh, said that, uh, you know, viewers are in their silos and people need to get out of their silos. And, and the preaching was, I take the point, but it does seem to be the audience for cable news wants to be in those silos anymore. And that's why some experts seem to think that maybe there is no place in cable news anymore, only because there are so many different options. And not only on cable, but also Internet, everybody's getting their news from the source they want. And when you try to provide them with the alternative, uh, uh, a down-the-road, middle, facts-only kind of view, uh, the audience isn't there for that. Is that a, a worse sign, not just for cable news, but for our culture in general? Yeah, it's a challenge for the culture. I mean, there is an audience there. It's just not a huge audience. And it becomes huge when there is a, a great story going. I mean, CNN will get great ratings when there's really a drama of some sort. All right. Uh, that is Rick Kaplan, former president of CNN. So it definitely knows the inside of there. Also MSNBC and Charles Feldman's boss at one point. Oh, yes, there. Nice yeah. talking to you again, Rick. All right. That's it for KDX In-Depth. We are going to do this again tomorrow.